The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Good morning. Happy Fourth of July. Uh, Up the rebels, down the British, right? Uh, My apologies to anybody who hails from the United Kingdom that's here. We gather here with no flag of any earthly nation on this stage, but a symbol of what unites us as a holy nation, what unites us as a kingdom. Every week, every Sunday, we come together and we say, up the cross, up the resurrection, up our king, down sin, down with Satan, down with death. And here we are again doing the same thing that we do each Sunday. It's a joy to bring God's Word to you this morning from Acts 15, a very interesting text. I think often on the 4th of July, back at previous 4th of Julys, I remember uh, some two decades ago, the 4th of July, 2002, the year after 9-11, celebrating in rural Ohio as as a young man, as a teenager, and the sense of unity that our nation felt at that time. And I remember last year, perhaps this was the case for you too, where all of the official uh, fireworks shows were closed down, but everybody bought out all of the fireworks, and I thought Burnsville was going to burn, like explode. <laughs> like, uh, just like everybody was um, shooting off fireworks, it felt like. And this year, I'm not sure where you're going to go, what you're going to do, who you will be with. But I think for me, and perhaps for you, this year feels perhaps markedly more disunified. Disunified in our, our nation, not unified in our communities, in our schools, among our politics, and yes, among our churches, too. So this morning, as we come to this text, and we see a significant division between Paul and Barnabas, what takes place in the early church, we have to think, well, does this speak to us in our moment as a church? Does this speak to us in our moment as a society? We have to realize, kids, this is not like Frozen, right, where Anna and Elsa have a big uh, spat, a falling out. There's a a song that comes out of it that sells hundreds of millions of albums. And uh, it's all nice and tidy after an hour and 50 minutes or so, right? Uh, It's not uh, the Marvel movies where Captain America and Iron Man are bros, and then the next movie they're not, and then the next movie they are, right? All in the course of a few short hours together. We have to understand that when division and conflict happens, sometimes it's unresolved. And it goes on unresolved for a long, long time. So as we're confronted with a major division in the early church between these two significant figures who fall out of fellowship, perhaps even out of friendship, we have to ask just what would this have been like? What would this have been like? What would it feel like if it happened today? two significant figures in the church 
fell out after years and years of ministry. So today, we're going to talk about how close these two actually were, what happened between them as best we can tell from the text, and we're going to look at what evidence remains that their division was reconciled, if there is any evidence in the New Testament. And then we're going to ask the question, what can we learn about the division that sometimes marks the relationships we hold dear and sometimes turn into wounds, walking wounds, living wounds, and there isn't any resolution? Would you pray with me? So, Father, help me. I feel less prepared, perhaps at other times, but your spirit is not unprepared for this moment at all. You have grace for the hearer, grace for the speaker, so help me to rightly preach your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Kids, you have a favorite detective? Just like a, or maybe adults, you got a favorite detective? Um, this last week at camp, uh, the theme was uh, like crime scene detective stuff, so uh, Nico Pearson dressed up as a famous English uh, detective with a, a mastermind detective. Uh, I want to say that Ethan, Ethan Buck was a, uh, a famous French detective. I was a supervillain uh, whose name may or may not rhyme with Shorty Artie. Um, and, uh, and I think Chloe, Chloe and Talitha, they were like, like little minions. They had mustaches on for the, uh, for the week. Do you have a favorite detective? Right now, for the next 10 or 15 minutes or so, my plan is for us to do some detective work in the New Testament. So I want you kids, grab your Bibles, or grab your parents' smartphones, or grab your parents' Bibles, or saddle up next to them, and we are going to go through in our outline four scenes. So we're going to spend time reconstructing the relationship between Paul and Barnabas to remind ourselves what this would actually be like. So grab a Bible and turn with me to Acts chapter 4. First, we see in Acts chapter 4, right at the beginning of this church movement that's springing up in Jerusalem, we have an introduction to this guy whose nickname is Barnabas, a native of the island of Cyprus in the Mediterranean Sea. We see that he sold land that he owned, and he gave it to the benefit of the church in Jerusalem. Look with me at Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 34, going to verse 37. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and they laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus. He sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So in the early church, we see the unity among the believers as they set aside their property, they sell it, and then they use it to bless the assembly. And Barnabas is singled out as one person that did this, one who takes his property and uses it to bless the church. And then in the immediate next chapter, in Acts chapter 5, we see that that shows a contrast. There's Barnabas, who out of a good heart, not really about his own reputation, just wants to bless. And then we see Ananias and Sapphira in the next chapter, who out of bad motivation and evil heart, they want to gain 
reputation, and they're struck dead. So this Barnabas, whose nickname means son of encouragement, well, it's a good nickname for this guy. It's a good nickname. And we see that the name sticks in the next scene that we're going to look at. So turn forward with me to our second scene, Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 26. So first we saw Barnabas, his introduction, he's a native of Cyprus, and now we see, second, Barnabas affirms Paul in Jerusalem. So probably three to four years after our first scene. Do you remember what four years ago was? Like four years ago, we were still meeting at a high school, right? And you couldn't see each other, you couldn't look around. That, was, that felt like a long time ago, right? So imagine four years have passed since Barnabas is introduced. And there's this guy, Saul of Tarsus, a preeminent man among the Jews. And he is taking and leading people to their execution. And suddenly, he's grabbed by Christ. So we see Barnabas take and affirm Paul in a time when the church was suspicious of him after his conversion. Just honestly, who could blame them? Take a, take a figure who is well-known in our world, perhaps for being against Christ, being against Christians, even murderously so, um, a terrorist perhaps. And if they walked in the back door and they said, praise God, I'm a believer, every single one of us would probably go, but really, but really, we see what Barnabas does here. This man, Saul of Tarsus, Paul, has hunted down Christians, and now Barnabas takes him and declares how the Lord Jesus has himself turned the hunter of disciples into a disciple. This is chapter 9, verse 26. And when he, Paul, had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road, <clears throat> excuse me, declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, for they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Imagine what it would be like, what it would have been like for Paul. You're a preeminent man among the Jews, and Christ converts you. And you turn, and all of your former friends and allies, and I think based on Philippians chapter 3, your family too, turns your back, their backs on you, and you become the hunted. And then this community of Jesus lovers that you've been brought into doesn't trust you either. How refreshing, like a glass of cool water would it be for one person to say, no, no, I'm going to take you with me. We're going to go to the disciples, to the apostles. So Barnabas continues to live up to his nickname, son of encouragement, and takes someone who is distrusted and advocates for them. We're going to see even more of this instinct in our passage today. Then we see in this passage that the Jews are seeking in Jerusalem to kill Paul. And so the disciples send him away to his native Tarsus to protect him from them. And this is apparently where he stays from Acts 9 verse 30 to Acts 11 verse 19, which by the best estimates of scholars is at least 11 years. 
It's 11 years that transpires between chapter 9, verse 30, and chapter 11, verse 19. So first scene, we saw who Barnabas was. He's a native of Cyprus. Second scene, he takes and affirms Paul. Now third scene, turn with me forward to Acts chapter 11, verse 19. We see that Barnabas pursues Paul in Tarsus. This is quite some time after the first introduction of Barnabas. This is, like I said, 11 years or more after Paul leaves and goes to Tarsus. And we find Barnabas going to Tarsus to bring Paul to what essentially is a new church plant in Antioch. This is chapter 11, verse 19. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. There were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. What do we see here? Barnabas is a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And what's his ambition? Help the church grow in that faith. So he travels something like 150 miles one way, 150 miles back, around the Mediterranean coast from Antioch to get Paul and bring him back for the encouragement of the church, the edification of their faith. So Barnabas is not just, he's not just personally encouraging people like one-on-one, he's thinking bigger. He's thinking, how can this whole church be encouraged? He wants to see the church in Antioch mature in Christ. And I think this ambition marks all healthy churches, right? We want to raise up leaders, raise up everyone who is in Christ and present them mature in Christ for the benefit of the saints. We want those who are like Barnabas in their ambition to see the church here at Bethlehem South built up so that people might find all their joy in Jesus and be equipped for ministry to spread this passion. So let me just encourage you, Bethlehem South, do you know anybody who's personally discipled you, edified you, served you? Encourage them. Be a Barnabas to them. And seek to emulate their conduct. And tell us, tell us, we leaders of the church want to know of the grace of God in your lives. We want to see the church built up, just as the church at Antioch was built up through Barnabas bringing Paul. So having seen where Barnabas is from, he's a native of Cyprus, having seen Barnabas affirm Paul, and now having seen Barnabas having gone and sought out Paul and brought him to Antioch, We move to our fourth scene. And kids, there's one piece of evidence here. We're going to look at a map together. A map on a screen during a Bethlehem sermon. Yes, it's true. So scene four, Barnabas brings Mark on the first missionary journey. This is Acts chapter 12, starting in verse 25. Turn with me there, please. So Acts chapter 12, verse 25. 
And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. When they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. From there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. So let's go ahead and pull up the, the slide for the map here. I don't have a laser pointer. You see there in the blue just the, the tracing of Paul's um, journey, Paul's and Barnabas's journey, and then in the red on the way back. So they leave Antioch and go actually to Barnabas's native Cyprus. And this is where they land and they have the confrontation with the Jewish false prophet and they see the Roman governor, the proconsul there over Cyprus, converted. They continue on. They flee from place to place while being hunted. They're mistaken for Greek gods. And Paul is stoned and left for dead, but survives. Remember also that on this first journey, about the time that they reached the coast after being on Cyprus, right up there in Persia and Pamphylia, that is when John Mark departs from them. This is in chapter 13, verse 13, just right after the passage that we read. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John, John Mark, left them and returned to Jerusalem. Paul and Barnabas complete their journey. Then after this, they participate in the Jerusalem Council from last week's sermon, where they go to bat on behalf of the Gentiles and then carry the Jerusalem Council's letter back to Antioch. What would this have been like? Here is your good friend, your partner in ministry, and you embark on a 1,500-mile journey, probably at least 1,200 miles of which is walking. Probably. You're going from place to place. You're encouraging the believers. And then what happens? What what would it have been like for Barnabas to watch Paul get stoned and left for dead? Picture that in your mind. What would it have been like for a demon-influenced man to have opposed the message that you're preaching and God shuts his mouth and leads a high government official to faith? Would you not feel a bond, a tight bond in faith with someone who had walked through ministry with you like that? So what would your hopes be for your friendship with your friend, with your brother? Now, one other thing. At some point, either before the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 or between the Jerusalem Council, uh, that, end, that all that ends in 1535 and our text today, There's what's called the Antioch Incident by scholars. This is recounted in Galatians 2. So this is where, at some point, Peter comes to um, up to Antioch to visit, and there's the, the Judaizers, the people who say that you have to convert to Judaism in order to be a Christ follower, and their uh, refusal to eat with Gentiles leads Peter and actually Barnabas too to back away from others in Christian fellowship. And Paul confronts Peter and Barnabas and says, this should not be. 
So at some point in their relationship, there's been confrontation and what looks like reconciliation at some point. So this is not just everything's been, you know, you know, dreamy and wonderful the entire time. This has also been hard at times. This about brings us up to our text today. But I think there's one really important question to be asked. If you're here today and the claims of Christianity to you are, maybe they're, they're not so solid, what is this claim about this resurrected uh, man, this resurrected Jew- Jewish man? Let the ministry of Paul and Barnabas stand as a testimony to you. Who would travel 1,500 miles, endure violence, endure criticism, be hunted, unless they genuinely believed that Jesus was alive? And though he died in Jerusalem, he did not stay dead. What circumstances might they endure? Might it be this morning that the claims of Christianity are true? So we saw brothers united. Now we're going to turn to our text, Acts 15, 36 through 41. And we see first in verse 36, here's an admirable ambition. Return and strengthen the churches. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. So having completed their first journey, having gone through the Jerusalem council, now back at Antioch again, Paul has an ambition to return to the churches and edify them. Do you remember 1 Thessalonians 2.8? Paul says about the Thessalonian church, which is a church that would be planted later. He said, I was willing while I was with you not only to share the gospel with you, but also my very life. My soul is the word in Greek. And that's Paul's ambition. Paul wants to see the church built up. They are dear to him, and I think to Barnabas. They had almost been killed. You'd seen a Roman governor come to faith. You'd probably want to go back and see what was up. No Facebook, no FaceTime, no Twitter to follow up. Just want to go. Might call this campers. Might call this the camp effect. Do you remember camp last week where I got like no sleep and you probably got no sleep and nobody got any sleep and we all came back with sniffles and whatnot? Do you feel like you want to go back do you feel like, I want to see more of God's grace here in this place? As you connected with each other and with downtown campers and staff, do you feel drawn to what God was doing among them, us? And it's natural, I think, to want to go back to the place of God's grace. Well, we do see that despite their ambition to go back, for what is probably wonderful reasons, we see that there's a problem. In this case, it's a problematic partner, John Mark. So this is verse 15, 37 through 38. Acts 15, 37 through 38. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. John, also called Mark, who, by the way, according to Colossians 4.10, is Barnabas' cousin, all right? So he's related to Barnabas. He's seen as a threat by Paul to fruitful gospel ministry. And Barnabas is willing to give him another opportunity. 
Maybe because he's the cuz, maybe. Or maybe just because that's kind of Barnabas' disposition. We saw it with Paul. He wants to give grace like that. Whatever Barnabas is reasoning, there's a dispute over John Mark. But consider, too, Paul's perspective. We just traveled 1,500 miles. We were almost killed. The whole journey was fraught with danger, and it will be again. And for another person to come along who's proven unreliable means increased complications and problems. Now, it's probably reductionistic to say Barnabas had grace and Paul did not. But I think both Barnabas's and Paul's instincts play a part. Now, there's no indication of sin between Paul and Barnabas, like indication of, like an accusation of sin. But very possibly there's an accusation of sin against John Mark. It stands, as it stands, it's pretty straightforward in our text without a lot of commentary by Luke. Just, is John Mark going to be helping or hindering this work of ministry? And Paul and Barnabas disagree. So look with me at verse 39, chapter 15, verse 39. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. They disagree sharply and they separate. And I wish I could say there's something clear here in the original Greek that gives us more of a, a sense of this. The words for sharp disagreement and separate are actually kind of unique. We don't have a lot of other data to go to in the New Testament to say, oh, was this an agree to disagree kind of moment? Or is it more of a, there were accusations of sin? Does such a split trouble you? I am certain it would have been troubling to the believers in Antioch. And yet, here we see God's mission continue. The Gentiles will hear of the gospel. Barnabas goes with his cousin to Cyprus, where there are believers now, where there's a Roman governor who has believed in Christ. And Paul goes with Silas, being commended to God's grace by the church in Antioch, and they go a different direction. Like with Peter last week, this is the last time we see Barnabas in the book of Acts. Now, just briefly here, what, what's happening here in the book of Acts is Luke, the author, is narrowing in on particular streams of where the gospel is going. You see in chapter 16, 8 to 10, the shift from third person to first person as Luke joins Paul on his second missionary journey, I think. So him, Barnabas not being in the text may not be like a call on whether Barnabas was a great guy or not a great guy at all. Just simply Luke's got other purposes for what's taking place. Now, If we only had this division and no other information about these two, perhaps we wouldn't have an entire sermon devoted to this. But there is more information elsewhere in the New Testament about what happened, at least between Paul and John Mark after these days. So first we saw the brothers united, then disunited, and then brothers united. I think in the outline it says, question mark, exclamation mark. We're not 100% sure about what happened with Paul and Barnabas. But there are some clues. So what takes place after these events with Barnabas and Paul? 
So first, in Colossians chapter 4, during Paul's closing uh, greetings in that book, this is uh, probably about a decade after Paul's split with Barnabas. So he's in prison in Rome, awaiting his first of two trials, and he writes a number of letters to different places he's been. We find this greeting at the end of Colossians. This is Colossians 4, verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, he greets you too. He's with Paul, apparently. And he says, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. Why particularly say, if this particular brother comes to you, welcome him? Maybe the Colossian church was aware of the split between Paul and Barnabas, and thus the split between Paul and John Mark. How would that have landed on you if you were aware of a split between two major figures in the early church, and then one of them says, this guy, greet him. Greet him and welcome him. Second, we see in the letter to Philemon, in Philemon 23 through 24, more information. So Philemon is a slaveholder. His slave, Onesimus, escaped. And Paul writes on behalf of um, Onesimus to Philemon. And we see this at the end of that brief letter. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. A fellow worker. Ten years prior, not a fellow worker. Unreliable. Ten years later, a fellow worker. One working alongside me in the ministry. And then last, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. So this is probably five years past the writing of Colossians and Philemon. Fifteen or so years after the incident between Barnabas and Paul. At the end of Paul's life, the last letter he wrote, He's in prison again for a second time, and this imprisonment's going to lead to his death. Look at what he says. This is 2 Timothy 4, 10 through 11. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he's very useful to me for ministry. One of the people that was alongside Paul when he wrote the Colossian letter and the letter of Philemon, Demas, is in love with the world and he falls away. But not Mark. The grace of God still at work in Mark's life over a decade plus. Mark has stayed the course. Was Paul wrong to not accept Mark then on his second missionary journey? We just don't know. But what we do know is the disagreement was strong between he and Barnabas. What seemed best to Paul and Barnabas was to part. And God went with both of them and did amazing things using them, many of which we're not aware of, including, despite this one reference to Barnabas in Colossians 4, we don't really know what happened between Barnabas and Paul. We do know what happened between Paul and John Mark. So where does this leave us? as we seek to apply this text. 
Paul and Barnabas were united, they were disunited, and then maybe they were reunited at some point that we're unaware of. How should we think about this incident or the times where we find ourselves in disunity with other believers? I labeled it as three things, three things to remember. Remember the providence of God, remember our own perceptions of others, and remember to pray. First, do you believe that God is sovereign and provident over even division that sometimes marks the church. He has purposes, honestly, sometimes for ruin and sometimes for restoration, that we cannot discern or penetrate his counsels. Just how many hot takes over this last year, right? All over social media, uh, concerning ministry, concerning politics, concerning um, you know, COVID and other things, we're just repeatedly over and over and over again. Look at the correlation. These two things happened at the same time. Look at this, you know, two-page article where, you know, oh, this makes total sense of all my world. And causation is asserted. Look at how this one thing did this one thing. Let me just tell you, brothers, sisters, the vast majority of those things don't carry with them the burden. They, they don't prove what many of those things say all over the internet about all kinds of things. But do you know what? There is one who does know the cause of all things and who is certainly carrying out all of his purposes because he himself is the causer. And we may not be able to see all the truth about these days or any days until that day. Are you willing to suspend final judgment? Are you willing to hold back how certain you feel about each other in your heart and mind and leave it up to the God who knows the beginning from the end and does all things according to the purpose of his will and who works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose and who began a good work not only in you but in the person sitting next to you and the person who's divided from you and he will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Second, what is your instinct with your brothers and sisters when opportunities for divisions arise? How do you perceive them? What is your perception of them? I thought of a little illustration. This is going to be a little bit of a swing. Stay with me, all right? It's 2025. It's four years from now. It's been proven that the mRNA vaccines do cause long-term complications. It's a thought experiment. Just think with me. And you were one that from the beginning said, these are untested. We should be careful despite what the warnings are out there. And you say, why, why haven't you listened to me? Suppose that actually happens in 2025. And you're proven to be right. How will you think about your brothers and sisters who disagreed with you? Will that be the linchpin by which your relationship holds? Or will there be a wideness in your mercy and your care for them? Or, it's 2025. It's been proven that COVID and all its various infections and mutations is the worst epidemic ever, far worse than the Spanish flu. And you're one that from the beginning said, this is dangerous. We should be vaccinated. We ought not take these warnings lightly. And there are brothers and sisters who have disagreed with you. And you're proven to be right. 
Will you have a wideness in your mercy, your care, your compassion for those who differ from you? Will you lean in in care and involvement, or will you lean out in judgment and isolation? South family, there is a purchased unity that we have in Christ that we must be eager to maintain. The spirit of unity and the bond of peace in our personal preferences and the way we do ministry and the distinct personalities and gifts that God has built this body with, with different instincts and different opinions, there's a purchased real unity that God tells us that we have a place to play in maintaining and nurturing. Or to ask a series of really practical questions. I'm going to repeat these. I'm going to say them once and I'm going to repeat them. Do you think God's thoughts about other people? Or do you only think your thoughts about them? Do you mainly focus on what disunifies you and spend your time mulling that? Or do you mull and rejoice in what unifies you with others? As you do that, do you begin to move towards the person in love and concern as Christ does? And then, do you begin to feel even deeper care for them, care of hospitality? So, again, do you think God's thoughts about other people are just your own thoughts? Do you focus mainly on what disunifies you or mainly on what unifies you? And do you begin to move towards the person in love and concern like Christ moves towards them? Do you feel an even deeper care for them, a deeper care that welcomes them in hospitality? Ultimately, do you define your relationship with other people in this room and outside this room on God's terms or on your own? Which is it? Brothers and sisters, because of the power of the Spirit, we are able to see the way that God has defined our relationship with each other and act on it. We can. This is not up to us alone to maintain. The Spirit will do so. Then last, how do you think about your brothers and sisters when division persists years after the initial parting? Do you pray for them? I wonder what Paul, Barnabas, and yes, John Mark thought about each other after their initial parting. When Paul sailed on in his second missionary journey and thought about the man that accompanied him and advocated for him, what do you think about Barnabas? I suspect he prayed for him. What did Barnabas do as he went on to his native Cyprus and he thought about Paul? I suspect that he prayed for him. They didn't cancel each other. They didn't write each other off. They didn't cauterize their hearts towards each other. For you, for your friends, for your family, for fellow church members that you're no longer in relationship with or perhaps your relationship has drifted with them, what's your instinct? There's a natural tendency in our sinful flesh to become cynical against others who don't agree with us or who we wonder what they genuinely think about us. Perhaps we ought not be as quick to judge and more quick to welcome as Christ would accept us, but not to doubtful disputations, Romans 14. Whether there's been an intentional parting or an unintentional drifting, do you pray for your brothers and sisters? Or honestly, if you've left Bethlehem and you're watching this video this week, this year, or years from now, do you pray for us? We want to pray for you, and we do. We care about the outcome of your faith, even if you're not part 
of our fellowship anymore? Do we see together in our text the long arc of God's grace to do everything according to the counsel of his will for our good? Do you see that? There's grace to bring us together, all of us who call out to God from a pure heart because God is working in our hearts by the Spirit. So in conclusion, we don't know how long or even if Paul and Barnabas reconciled. But we do see that God's grace followed both of them in their various journeys. As we settle now, and we're going to follow Paul throughout the book of Acts on his second and third missionary journeys, our hearts should be primed to continue to look for God's grace in the book of Acts and be prepared to encounter it in our lives throughout this summer and beyond. As we see the gospel spread in the book of Acts, are we expecting to see the gospel spread as the Spirit continues to unify us? As it were, we saw the end of the first season of Acts. If you're going to conceive of Acts as a three-part um, a story or three seasons in a series, we saw the end of the first season of Acts when Stephen died in chapter 7. Now we're kind of in the mid-season break in season 2 as Paul prepares to go out with those who first came, go out without those who first came along with him in ministry. What will the rest of Acts hold? Now, we know the end of the story. Paul, Barnabas, John Mark did not. But they did know this, I suspect, and we should be certain of this. God's grace followed them, prepared them, paved a way for them so that they might know him and they might minister in his name. And God's grace will follow us and prepare us and pave a way for us whatever the rest of 2021 and beyond has. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.